Section 1 of A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. Section 1. Chapter 1. Introductory. Al-ilm al-ilman, ilm al-adiyan, wa ilm al-abdan. Science is twofold, theology and medicine. I have so often been asked how I first came to occupy myself with the study of Eastern languages, that I have decided to devote the opening chapter of this book to answering this question, and to describing as succinctly as possible the process by which, not without difficulty and occasional discouragement, I succeeded, ere I ever set foot in Persia, in obtaining a sufficient mastery over the Persian tongue to enable me to employ it with some facility as an instrument of conversation, and to explore with pleasure and profit the enchanted realms of its vast and varied literature. I have not arrived at this decision without some hesitation and misgiving, for I do not wish to obtrude myself unnecessarily on the attention of my readers, and one can hardly be autobiographical without running the risk of being egotistical. But then the same thing applies with equal force to all descriptions intended for publication of any part of one's personal experiences, such, for instance, as one's own travels. Believing that the observations, impressions, and experiences of my twelve-month sojourn in Persia during the years 1887-8 to may be of interest to others besides myself, I have at length determined to publish them. It is too late now to turn squeamish about the use of the pronoun of the first person. I will be as sparing of its use as I can, but use it I must. I might indeed have given to this book the form of a systematic treatise on Persia, a plan which for some time I did actually entertain. But against this plan three reasons finally decided me. Firstly, that my publishers expressed a preference for the narrative form, which they believed would render the book more readable. Secondly, that for the more ambitious project of writing a systematic treatise, I did not feel myself prepared, and could not prepare myself without the expenditure of time only to be obtained by the sacrifice of other work which seemed to me of greater importance. Thirdly, that the recent publication of the Honourable G. N. Curzon's encyclopedic work on Persia will, for some time to come, prevent any similar attempt on the part of anyone else who is not either remarkably rash or exceedingly well informed. Moreover, the question, what first made you take up Persian, when addressed to an Englishman, who is neither engaged in nor destined for an eastern career deserves an answer 
In France, Germany, or Russia, such a question would hardly be asked. But in England, a knowledge of Eastern languages is no stepping stone to diplomatic employment in Eastern countries. And though there exist in the universities and the British Museum posts more desirable than this to the student of Oriental languages, such posts are few, and when vacant, hotly competed for. In spite of every discouragement, there are, I rejoice to say, almost every year, a few young Englishmen who, actuated solely by love of knowledge and desire to extend the frontiers of science in a domain which still contains vast tracts of unexplored country, devote themselves to this study. To them, too often have I had to repeat the words of warning given to me by my honoured friend and teacher, the late Dr. William Wright, an Arabic scholar whom not Cambridge or England only, but Europe, mourns with heartfelt sorrow and remembers with legitimate pride. It was in the year 1884, so far as I remember, I was leaving Cambridge with mingled feelings of sorrow and of hope. Sorrow, because I was to bid farewell forever, as I then expected, to the university and the college to which I owe a debt of gratitude beyond the power of words to describe. Hope, because the honours I had just gained in the Indian languages tripos made me sanguine of obtaining some employment which would enable me to pursue with advantage and success a study to which I was devotedly attached, and which even medicine, for which I was then destined, with all its charms and far-reaching interests, could not rival in my affections. This hope, in answer to an inquiry as to what I intended to do on leaving Cambridge, I one day confided to Dr. Wright. No one, as I well knew, could better sympathize with it or gauge its chances of fulfillment. And from no one could I look for kinder, wiser, and more prudent counsel. And this was the advice he gave me. If, said he, you have private means which render you independent of a profession, then pursue your oriental studies and fear not that they will disappoint you or fail to return you a rich reward of happiness and honour. But if you cannot afford to do this, and are obliged to consider how you may earn a livelihood, then devote yourself wholly to medicine, and abandon, save as a relaxation for your leisure moments, the pursuit of oriental letters. The posts for which such knowledge will fit you are few, and, for the most part, poorly endowed. Neither can you hope to obtain them till you have worked and waited for many years. And from the government you must look for nothing, for it has long shown, and still continues to show, an increasing indisposition to offer the slightest encouragement to the study of Eastern languages. A rare piece of good fortune has in my case falsified a prediction of which Dr. Wright himself though I knew it not till long afterwards, did all in his power to avert the accomplishment. But in general, it still holds true, and I write these words not for myself, 
but for those young English Orientalists whose disappointments, struggles, and unfulfilled, though legitimate hopes, I have so often been compelled to watch with keen but impotent sorrow and sympathy. Often I reflect with bitterness that England, though more directly interested in the East than any other European country save Russia, not only offers less encouragement to her sons to engage in the study of Oriental languages than any other great European nation, but can find no employment even for those few who, notwithstanding every discouragement, are impelled by their own inclination to this study, and who, by diligence, zeal, and natural aptitude, attain proficiency therein. How different is it in France? There, not to mention the more academic and purely scientific courses of lectures on Hebrew, Syriac, Arabic, Zand, Pahlavi, Persian, Sanskrit, and on Egyptian, Assyrian, and Semitic archaeology and philology, delivered regularly by savants of European reputation at the Collège de France and the Sorbonne, all of which lectures are freely open to persons of either sex and any nationality. There is a special school of Oriental languages, now within a year or two of its centenary, where practical instruction of the best imaginable kind is given, also gratuitously by European professors, assisted in most cases by native repetiteurs in literary and colloquial Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Malay, Javanese, Armenian, modern Greek, Chinese, Japanese, Annamite, Hindustani, Tamil, Russian, and Romanian, as well as in the geography, history, and jurisprudence of the states of the extreme east. To these lectures, the best, I repeat, without fear of contradiction, which can be imagined, any student, French or foreign, is admitted free of charge. And any student who has followed them diligently for three years, and passed the periodical examinations to the satisfaction of his teachers, provided that he be a French subject, may confidently reckon on receiving, sooner or later, from the government such employment as his tastes, training, and attainments have fitted him for. The manifold advantages of this admirable system, alike to the state and the individual, must be obvious to the most obtuse, and need no demonstration. All honour to France for the signal services which she has rendered to the cause of learning. May she long maintain that position of eminence in science which she has so nobly won, and which she so deservedly occupies, and to us English too, may she become, in this respect at least, an exemplar and a pattern. Now, having unburdened my mind on this matter, I will recount briefly how I came to devote myself to the study of Oriental languages. I was originally destined to become an engineer, and therefore, partly because, at any rate sixteen years ago, the teaching of the modern side 
was still in a most rudimentary state partly because i most eagerly desired emancipation from a life entirely uncongenial to me i left school at the age of fifteen and a half with little knowledge and less love of latin and greek i have since then learned better to appreciate the value of these languages and to regret the slenderness of my classical attainments yet the method according to which they are generally taught in english public schools is so unattractive and in my opinion so inefficient that had i been subjected to it much longer i should probably have come to loathe all foreign languages and to shudder at the very sight of a grammar it is a good thing for the student of a language to study its grammar when he has learned to read and understand it just as it is a good thing for an artist to study the anatomy of the human body when he has learned to sketch a figure or catch the expression of a face but for one to seek to obtain a mastery over a language by learning rules of accidents and syntax is as though he should regard the dissecting room as the single and sufficient portal of entrance to the academy how little a knowledge of grammar has to do with the facility in the use of language is shown by the fact that comparatively few have studied the grammar of that language over which they have the greatest mastery while amongst all the latin and greek scholars in this country those who could make an extempore speech dash off an impromptu note or carry on a sustained conversation in either language are in a small minority then amongst other evil things connected with it is the magnificent contempt for all non-english systems of pronunciation which the ordinary public school system of teaching latin and greek encourages granted that the pronunciation of greek is very different in the athens of today from what it was in the time of plato or euripides and that cicero would not understand or would understand with difficulty the latin of the vatican does it follow that both languages should be pronounced exactly like english of all spoken tongues the most anomalous in pronunciation what should we think of a chinaman who because he was convinced that the pronunciation of english in the fourteenth century differed widely from that of the nineteenth deliberately elected to read chaucer with the accent and intonation of chinese if latin and greek alone were concerned it would not so much matter but the influence of this doctrine of pan anglican pronunciation too often extends to french and german as well the spirit engendered by it is finely displayed in these two sayings which i remember to have heard repeated anyone can understand english if they choose provided you talk loud enough always mistrust an englishman who talks french like a frenchman apart from the general failure to invest the books read with any human historical or literary interest or to treat them as expressions of the thoughts feelings and aspirations of our fellow-creatures instead of as grammatical treadmills there is another reason why the public school system of teaching languages 
commonly fails to impart much useful knowledge of them when any intelligent being who is a free agent wishes to obtain an efficient knowledge of a foreign language as quickly as possible how does he proceed he begins with an easy text and first obtains the general sense of each sentence and the meaning of each particular word from his teacher in default of a teacher he falls back on the best available substitute namely a good translation and a dictionary looking out words in a dictionary is however mere waste of time if their meaning can be ascertained in any other way so that he will use this means only when compelled to do so having ascertained the meaning of each word he will note it down either in the margin of the book or elsewhere so that he may not have to ask it or look it out again then he will read the passage which he has thus studied over and over again if possible aloud so that the tongue ear and mind may be simultaneously familiarized with the new instrument of thought and communication of which he desires to possess himself until he perfectly understands the meaning without mentally translating it into english and until the foreign words no longer strange evoke in his mind not their english equivalents but the ideas which they connote this is the proper way to learn a language and it is opposed at almost every point to the public school method which regards the use of cribs as a deadly sin and substitutes parsing and construing for reading and understanding notwithstanding all this i am well aware that the advocates of this method have in their armory another and more potent argument a boy does not go to school say they to learn latin and greek but to learn to confront disagreeable duties with equanimity and to do what is distasteful to him with cheerfulness to this i have nothing to say it is unanswerable and final if boys are sent to school to learn what the word disagreeable means and to realize that the most tedious monotony is perfectly compatible with the most acute misery and that the most assiduous labor if it be not wisely directed does not necessarily secure the attainment of the object ostensibly aimed at then indeed does the public school offer the surest means of attaining this end the most wretched day of my life except the day when i left college was the day i went to school during the earlier portion of my school life i believed that i nearly fathomed the possibilities of human misery and despair i learned then what i am thankful to say i have unlearned since to be a pessimist a misanthrope and a cynic and i have learned since what i did not understand then that to know by rote a quantity of grammatical rules is in itself not much more useful than to know how often each letter of the alphabet occurs in paradise lost or how many separate stones went to the building of the great pyramid many of my readers 
even those who may be inclined to agree with me as to the desirability of modifying the teaching of our public schools will blame me for expressing myself so strongly the value of a public school education in the development of character cannot be denied and in the teaching also great improvements have i believe been made within the last ten or fifteen years but as far as my own experience goes i do not feel that i have spoken at all too strongly it was the turkish war with russia in eighteen seventy seven to eight that first attracted my attention to the east about which till that time i had known and cared nothing to the young war is always interesting and i watched the progress of this struggle with eager attention at first my proclivities were by no means for the turks but the losing side more especially when it continues to struggle gallantly against defeat always has a claim on our sympathy and moreover the cant of the anti-turkish party in england and the wretched attempts to confound questions of abstract justice with party politics disgusted me beyond measure ere the close of the war i would have died to save turkey and i mourned the fall of plevna as though it had been a disaster inflicted on my own country and so gradually pity turned to admiration and admiration to enthusiasm until the turks became in my eyes veritable heroes and the desire to identify myself with their cause make my dwelling amongst them and unite with them in the defence of their land possessed me heart and soul at the age of sixteen such enthusiasm more easily establishes itself in the heart and while it lasts for it often fades as quickly as it bloomed exercises a more absolute and uncontrolled sway over the mind than at a more advanced age even though it be transitory its effects as in my case may be permanent so now my whole ambition came to be this how i might become in time an officer in the turkish army and the plan which i proposed to myself was to enter first the english army to remain there till i had learned my profession and attained the rank of captain then to resign my commission and enter the service of the ottoman government which as i understood gave a promotion of two grades so wild a project will doubtless move many of my readers to mirth and some to indignation but such as it was it was for a time paramount in my mind and its influence outlived it its accomplishment however evidently needed time and as my enthusiasm demanded some immediate object i resolved at once to begin the study of the turkish language few of my readers probably have had occasion to embark on this study or even to consider what steps they would take if a desire to do so suddenly came upon them i may therefore here remark that for one not resident in the metropolis it is far from easy to discover anything about the turkish language and almost impossible to find a teacher 
however after much seeking and many enquiries i succeeded in obtaining a copy of barker's turkish grammar into this i plunged with enthusiasm i learned turkish verbs in the old school fashion and blundered through the pleasantries of khoja nasruddin effendi but so ignorant was i and so involved is the ottoman construction that it took me some time to discover that the language is written from right to left while true to the pan-anglican system on which i have already animadverted i read my turkish as though it had been english pronouncing for example the article bir and the substantive ber exactly the same as though both instead of neither rhymed with the english words fur and fur and so i bungled on for a while making slow but steady progress and wasting much time but with undiminished enthusiasm for which i was presently rewarded by discovering a teacher this was an irish clergyman who had i believe served as a private in the crimean war picked up some turkish attracted attention by his proficiency in a language of which very few englishmen have any knowledge and so gained employment as an interpreter after the war he was ordained as a clergyman of the church of england and remained for some years at constantinople as a missionary i do not know how his work prospered but if he succeeded in winning from the turks half the sympathy and love with which they inspired him his success must have been great indeed when i discovered him he had a cure of souls in the consit iron district having been driven from his last parish by the resentment of his flock whigs almost to a man which he had incurred by venturing publicly to defend the turks at a time when they were at the very nadir of unpopularity and when the outcry about the bulgarian atrocities was at its height so the very religious and humane persons who composed his congregation announced to his vicar their intention of withdrawing their subscriptions and support from the church so long as the boshi bozouk such as he informed me not without a certain pride was the name they had given him occupied his pulpit so there was nothing for it but that he should go isolated in the uncongenial environment to which he was transferred he was i think almost as eager to teach me turkish as i was to learn it and many a pleasant hour did i pass in his little parlour listening with inexhaustible delight to the anecdotes of his life in constantinople which he loved to tell peace be to his memory he died in africa once more engaged in mission work not long after i went to cambridge end of section one recording by nicholas james bridgewater recorded in london england